0: listening to The Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to artist and futurist Taryn Southern.
1: I just get really excited about the future of historical preservation and story and narrative preservation and heritage preservation through these different technologies like AI that will enable us to repackage our experience.
0: Taryn shed her insights into how collaborating with robots can unlock new creative possibilities the experimental processes behind developing your own artificially intelligent clone, and the tools we can use to preserve our digital legacy and animate our ancestors. Taryn, I-, I became aware of your work when you created a music album in collaboration with Artificial Intelligence called I Am AI. So, uh, what was it that you actually learnt from that experience?
1: I learned a lot. You know, it was, it felt like the early days of, of AI in many ways. It, there were a number of applications out there, but they weren't consumer friendly. They weren't mm-hmm. user friendly. You had to know how to code in order to, to create music with AI. So the barriers to entry were quite high. And I was fortunate. I reached out to a number of companies that were early in the space IBM Watson, Amper, Ava, JukeDeck. And I just said, hey, I really want to experiment with your technology. I only know basic coding. Can you help me? And (laughs) all of them said yes. Like this is what we want. We want artists to use our product. (laughs) We're basically just building for a bunch of engineers right now. And so, Uh for a number of these companies, I was really sort of the the test case for their product or software, and was able to be intricately involved in the process. And I, you know, I, I took home a few things. One that creativity. Doesn't have to be so narrowly defined as a certain type of process. You know, a lot of people will say, well, composing music or making music involves XYZ. It's sitting down at a piano, writing the chords, and coming up with something beautiful. And that's certainly one way to make music. But there's this whole other process that I suppose I refined in working with these different technologies that required a slightly different set of skills. And because I had just directed, or was directing rather a documentary during this time, mm. I was able to easily sort of see the the similarities between directing a film and essentially directing artificial intelligence to to make music the way that I had you know in the creative vision that I had and that's its own skill set and so I, I very much likened it to that process so that was that was one of the things I learned
0: well, it's interesting that you say. You directed the AI because the thing that I always wondered is why was the the music not released as the AI featuring Taryn Southern? Why was it important for you to still have some form of ownership over that work, despite the amount of work that was done by uh, the amalgam of artificial intelligent software yeah. that was available to you? Well,
1: it's interesting. We get we end up getting into all these philosophical and pragmatic conversations uh-huh. around well, what is composing music. Yeah. Who Who is the composer? Because think about it this way. If you had heard any of the early outputs of the AI from my album, they would have been almost unrecognizable. Uh Think about it like this. As a director of a documentary, I'm shooting hundreds of hours of footage, sometimes thousands of hours of footage. And I've got to take that footage and make sense out of it. I've got to create a story, a -hmm. through line, and there's a million different ways that you can go with that raw footage. If you give that to 10 different directors, you're going to have 10 completely different films and styles. So ultimately I'm taking a ton of output, you know, giving the AI direction. I'm saying, I want this and this style with this BPM, give it to me. And then I'm getting 99 pieces of turd music and <laughs> maybe one piece of, a few pieces of good music, and then I'm cobbling it together. I'm editing it together. I'm sort of synthesizing all of it into something that I feel is interesting and beautiful. And so the end result really does have a huge amount of human input uh-huh. and thus does feel more collaborative. But you could argue that the actual raw material is all the AI. Well, that's the
0: interesting thing what you said there about turd music, so, so the very fact that the a <laughs> i in well, a
1: very sophisticated term there <laughs> well no we,
0: we we can make it an official term for the the detritus that ai uh, algorithms can sometimes output, but i I guess in a funny sort of way that work is what's more interesting to me. The fact that uh, this was uh, advertised, and, and the press picked it up as this incredible collaboration between AI and humans, but in actual fact the AI needed a lot of coaxing. There was so much output that was not fit for human ears. The question then becomes, if it wasn't fit for human ears, why did the AI see it as this beautiful, potentially beautiful, valid form of output.
1: Well, because the AI doesn't have a value judgment yet, <laughs>
0: yet. around Here we the go. quality of the music,
1: but we will get there, and it will probably be trained on neural algorithms taken mm-hmm. from humans that are listening to these pieces of music, and then rea- they're getting real-time reactions, and then the AI will learn from that. I mean, they, there's no doubt about it that we'll get to a point, and probably sooner than later where what I did on that album is no longer necessary. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, that becomes a whole other philosophical discussion. But, but at least for the, for the early days of AI, for any, really any kind of art, painting, digital art, music, there's a lot of handholding mm. um, needed with the human. And then, and then you could argue that it's also extending human capabilities in a lot of ways. You know, I, I don't, I grew up playing piano, I grew up listening to Spice Girls and pop music. And so you could argue that my neural algorithm is trained on a very specific set Mm -hmm. of musical influences. You know, my knowledge base and my ability to create is going to be somewhat self-contained in a space based upon what I have learned. So me collaborating with an AI... That has all of this knowledge and breadth of expertise in jazz music, in, in 1600s classical, <laughs> in all of these different forms of music, is going to expand my creative repertoire, and it did. Mm. And that was really the other second takeaway that I learned from it. But that's the exciting part for, for I think, humans that are, on, that are you know, endeavoring into anything creative with AI.
0: So, so, why not in that case? Why not limit the output of the AI? Why not create the system that would just listen to Spice Girls music to output something that you would find, or certainly nineties Taron would find, extremely appealing?
1: You can, you can train them on, <laughs> on those specific sets, and the more you train, the better they get. It's still a learning curve because it also comes down to, well, who are the engineers building building mm. these algorithms? You know, if you peel back the curtain or peer under the hood, rather, at the code, how are they taking these learnings and then building off of it? And that's really where there's also a lot of highly creative work going on on the engineering side, too. Mm. And I mean, you're right, Luke. These algorithms are going to get really good. And I'm, I'm already hearing a huge difference now, which is now three years after I released the album, it's incredible what these technology companies have developed in that short span of time.
0: Then why is the, the aim to represent music as it pre-exists in life. There's always been, especially with the EDM, when that first came around and before that when we had these uh, tapes that were able to create these loops and these all these different ways the BBC Radiophonic <laughs> Workshop used to create music. With these new forms of technology we had new sounds and yet it feels like these AI systems what they're doing is ingesting pre-existing human created music in the attempt to re-express human creativity. Why not allow them to express AI creativity, even if AI creativity, the sound is, as you expressed it, turd music. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I know that there are a few artists working with AI music that absolutely love the uh-huh. the turd music that's that's being output because they they do find inspiration in the oddities, you know, and mm. in, in the the bizarre kind of textures that are being created and there is a lot of novelty happening even just on, on the creation of sounds. I could use Google's, I'm struggling to remember it's been so long, I think it's called InSynth, their uh-huh. AI tool which allows you to blend different sounds. So I could take the moo of a cow, moo, <laughs> and like interject it with a synthesizer and then add the stylistic preference of like a jazz horn And then I get this whole new sound and it's really, it's really wild. But, you know, I think why, why are people creating AI that, that's sort of building off of human, the human ear? Mm. I mean, there, there are a lot of different reasons, but I think the, the primary two, and I'm not, I'm not saying whether they're good or bad, but I think one is, is this need to have cheaper, more readily available music for productions. You know, the rise of digital media has meant everyone wants to do things cheaper and faster. And so AI music presents a potential solution for that. And then the second, I think, is customization. Knowing that we're five years away, potentially, from everyone having some version of a brain interface in their home and wanting a customized musical playlist that's fit. Exactly for their brain activity and what their intention is that day. Do you want to focus? Do you want to, mm. do you want to find hope? Do you want to just cry your eyes out? Do you need to sleep? And then you run all that into the algorithm and the AI then builds you your own customized playlist.
0: That's a fascinating idea. But Driving towards efficiency, as you just said there, the ability to create music quickly and cheaply, surely that's the enemy of creativity. Creativity is about playing around, experimenting, getting things wrong. If AI's aim is to output something that is correct, that is right, that sounds good, does that ruin the process of creativity?
1: Yeah, it's, this is my favorite juicy question. <laughs> and I, I always like to play devil's advocate on this question, maybe because I feel that most people, when they enter the conversation, they that's where they go. They're like, this isn't creative if, if something is just sort of doing it for you, right? And there's an argument for that. Yes, that you're reducing the creativity around the music creation process. But if we look at any tool that has come onto the scene, that has made creativity easier, that has reduced the process Mm. to something more streamlined, It's hard for us to argue that it's inherently reduced creativity because those tools inevitably open up new possibilities. So when you think about an iPhone, for instance, and how much easier it's made taking photographs, you know, you used to, as a photographer, if you wanted to take good photos, you sure as hell better have been educated and learn about f-stop and learn about, you know, exposure and all Mm. of these different things and depth of field so that you can take a beautiful photo. And now you've got iPhone automatically doing all of those things for you. Is it reducing the creativity of the photographer? Perhaps, but it's also opened up all of these other possibilities in VFX, video creation. I mean, now any 10-year-old can essentially Mm. make a beautiful video with like CGI graphics. And you're you're like, all right, so maybe we reduce creativity in, in one area, but we've sort of opened it up in another. And I think you could argue that AI music may very well be that. It's like once we have these tools that make things more efficient, where do humans then spend the extra time that they have with these projects? In my case, with my album, my album did take a lot less time to make than if yeah. I had made a, a traditional album. I spent that time making 360 degree VR music videos for these songs and learned how to create in VR. And that was a really cool process. And I really thought by the end of this album, I'm like, you know what? I think that the future of artistry and creativity, I think people will look back on how we used to say, I'm a painter. I'm a filmmaker. I'm an actor. I'm a singer. Mm. I'm an editor. And they'll be like, that's so crazy. Either you're a creative artist you know, and you're doing all the things and you have this vision and you're just bringing it to life through these different mediums. I think that that is like the future of creativity is people that are going to be able to play in all these different mediums and have this breath. And they'll be able to do that because our tools will be so good.
0: I mean, you can tell that you come from a YouTube background where you have to be all of those things. You have to be <laughs> the true. talent. You have to be the person editing it, the person distributing it, the person marketing it. You have to play these these multitude of uh, um, roles to be able to produce and allow your creativity to be seen. But should the aim always be to Allow this stuff to find an audience. Thinking back to AI music, mm. I mean, what about music that the human ear can't even hear because it's at frequencies and resonances that mm. machines can create and machines can pick up on, but maybe human beings can't? Why should creativity always be boxed into an acknowledgement of the fact that there is a potential audience for that creativity?
1: Mm. I love that question, Luke. And I mean, If you could somehow solve that for us. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's more a reflection of where we are as a society than it is of these new tools. I mean, I think you look around and 13 to 16-year-olds, they don't want to be astronauts. They want to be TikTok stars. And, of course, thats I'm making a generalization. I'm sure that there are some out there that would be excited to be an astronaut, but I just i can't believe... How quickly we moved into a space of produce, 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 because there's a clear, I guess, monetary or whether it's monetary or a desire for fame, you know, it's sort of like appealing to the lo- lowest common human denominators, mm-hmm. these technologies. And so, it's sort of pushing everyone towards that. And I don't like it. I mean, that is why I left YouTube. I left YouTube for the very reason, for that very question. I was like, I got into this space to be a renegade and to do my own thing and to sort of, Buck the traditional Hollywood system. Um, And that's how it started. But then it became something else entirely. It became this hamster wheel that you had to keep up with. And if you didn't keep up with it, you would be punished, not just by your audience, but by the algorithms because they were built for frequency. Of output, and so unless we solve—I mean, there's a number of different things we have to solve—but until we do that, creativity will absolutely be commoditized.
0: Well, well. Firstly, I'm terrified that the next generation will be twerking on Mars if that's the uh, TikTok generation finally makes it to the stars. But also. Hearing you describe that experience of creating for YouTube, I mean, you were collaborating with algorithms. You had to play the algorithm to be able to get your work seen. So I guess yeah. uh, this AI creativity, this collaboration—I mean, this is something we're doing by the nature of using technological tools such as art, laptops, and platforms like YouTube.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: The question is whether that's the uh, thing that we should be focusing on.
1: What do you think the solution is, Luke? I... Or, a star- or a starting point, even.
0: I'm fascinated by, and even with doing this podcast, I'm, I'm fascinated by conversations that aren't captured for distribution. I mean, even this right now, we're aware of an audience that so this is going to mm-hmm. be listened to, that we're currently in the ears of other people, you know? So we have to then uh, purport ourselves and present ourselves in a certain way to ensure that a conversation is flowing, to ensure sure. that it's going to be interesting to a perceived audience. Sure. It's getting to the point. Point now where every single conversation on planet Earth has to, in some way, shape, or form, be captured for the purpose of mm. distribution. It's like, why can't yeah. we have a conversation without a perceived audience? You know, I, so I'd love just- to just hang with you, Taryn, but in <sighs> a weird sort of way, doing the Futures podcast is a valid excuse for doing that and asking you these questions. And I guess, can we get to a point where we just create for ourselves? You know and I wonder that's why you're creating now these AI clones because there's a realization that hey you know I just want to do my teran southern stuff and I'm going to let my AI clone go out into the world and play that mediated game on my behalf so that I can reclaim my brain and reclaim my creativity <laughs> and not have to produce for algorithms and I I'm fascinated by people who do clone themselves and I think I should let our audience know that you have cloned yourself. You've created <laughs> now this AI Taren. So, who is AI Taren? What is she? What is it? I guess. And and how does she or it express itself on the web? And and then I guess we can kind of try and work out what that means for the future of these platforms.
1: Oh goodness! Yes. I mean, I'll just preface by saying I'm still. Figuring it out. Um, <laughs> are we <laughs> so all? Yeah. We are. And and by the way, I just really want to double down on what you said there. I think the fact that we are all having so many performative conversations is hindering a lot of nuanced perspectives. Mm. Because when you know that there's an audience to be had, either, either people are going to be more measured in how they present their opinions, or they'll take the megaphone shock approach and just shout the craziest thing to get attention. Mm. And it's not actually allowing for a lot of nuance to, to come through. So I appreciate that perspective. And on the AI clone front, which is a different thing entirely, about a year ago, I was put in touch with this company, Hour One. They're based in Israel. They had been working on essentially a reimagining of what AI video could do if you're cre- recreating pixel by pixel a human image. So up until they came along, most of the AI video technology that we've seen was this kind of mesh technology. Where mm. You're sort of like meshing images and, and the algorithm sort of taking the average and then presenting that in pixel form, otherwise known as deepfake. (sighs) And so you'd get these images of people that were, you know, slightly, you could tell there was just like something weird about them and they were uncanny, but something was a little strange. And so this company came along and said, hey, what, what, what happens if we have the algorithms learn through this different process and recreate the images pixel by pixel? And that's how they began. And the initial initial sort of use case for the technology was education like let's take teachers who are the best teachers in the world mm. they don't want to be on video every day teaching they don't have a the time for it we need to scale out their abilities they can't speak in different languages so what happens if we clone them they then submit their curriculums and now we can have that translated in every single language ship their incredible curriculums around the world and they don't have to show up for class. They get to just focus on you know, learning and uh-huh. teaching. So that was the initial use case. And I was put in touch with them and we decided to go ahead and make a clone of, of myself with, with the, the idea being that this is a big experiment. What happens when a creative person who is an artist in front and behind the camera has one area mm. of production streamlined in a different way? What does that open up the possibilities for?
0: We'll we'll help our audience understand because you said it so matter of factly. I've just cloned myself as if it was, um, you know, something that you just do every single day. Oh, I've just cloned myself again. Uh, It's like, oh, Jesus, Taryn, how many of you are there? But but, I mean, it, it goes back to that very Marshall McLuhan thing of human beings being fascinated by versions of themselves in other media. And you've created a version of yourself. It is in another media, but it's still a representation of you. It's important that it is your. Face. I mean, why make that sort of decision? Why can't AI Taron have three eyes, two noses, and six mouths? I mean, why must it stay within these parameters of something that represents you as an individual?
1: Well, I think that it will. Soon, I will soon have the option to add a third eye or <laughs> a horn on my head or whatever I want, and that's that's also very exciting because real Taryn, you know, can't just costume change in ten uh-huh. seconds. For me, as a YouTuber, when I was when I was doing that, you know, the whole thing was about connecting to your audience, and there is something about having your face on camera that that matters. And I think in doing this AI experiment, part of the experiment is do people still connect mm. with this clone version of oneself? And I have, I have no preconceptions about whether they do or don't. And I think that there's a lot of things also challenges and limitations around the technology that might prevent someone feeling as though there's an authentic connection that also opens up a whole other can of worms, which is like, is it bad? Yeah is this a black mirror episode to have all of these people connecting to someone's clone? And part of my experimentation is like figuring out the answers to those questions. But what's interesting for me is I have very little to no interest in being in front of the camera anymore. Mm. I did it for 10 years of my career. I had a ton of fun and then I was done. I was exhausted. I was worn out. I was also like I'm not that funny like uh, I'm trying too hard like why why am I pushing so hard at this thing that I'm like mediocre at I really really love ideating writing mm. directing that lights me up and yet I built something over 10 years that involved my face and likeness and personality and it's not that I think that that needs to be exploited further, but there's an opportunity for me as an artist to say, well, I know myself really well. If I take the best of all of my work over Mm. the course of 10 years, feed it into an algorithm where it algorithm can actually make me a better performer, funnier, you know, better comedic timing, all of these things. And then I get to direct myself, Uh you know, without having like the bias of being on camera or the nerves or whatever it is that's going on, that's preventing me from my best performance. I just get to direct my AI self. Like what a fun experiment to see what happens. Like maybe I will make AI Taryn 20 times more entertaining than real Taryn ever was, (laughs) but I still get all the credit.
0: That's great. Well, well, I mean, that's an interesting point that you still get all the credit. I mean, (laughs) uh, at what point does AI Taryn turn around and go, "Hey, man, like I'm making you funnier, (laughs) smarter, way more interesting." This is this is largely my work right now, and why am I not being reimbursed for it so that I can buy digital things and uh, bits that I want on on the web? But it's interesting to me, uh, and I guess it kind of makes complete sense that someone who spent so much time. Connecting through a lens for YouTube created this version of themselves, this mediated version of themselves. Because I guess Taryn Southern, the the YouTube sensation, the YouTube star, was always a mediated expression of who you actually were as a breathing, biological human being. I mean, there was a disconnect there. It's very Irving Goffman, presentation of self in everyday life. You know, you were presenting yourself for your audience. So it kind of makes sense to just outsource that shit to an AI. (laughs)
1: Yeah. No, this is going to... What I'm about to say would be, I think, blasphemous to a lot of the YouTube community. Uh-huh. The reality is you you can sit there all day and say to the camera, I love you guys. You're yeah. my family. We're a community. No. I mean, you, you, mm. you, you care about the people that tune in and you care collectively about what they think. And there are real connections that you make,
2: mm.
1: but most of the time you're staring at a camera lens you are not actually having a real connection and that's yep. part of the problem with all of this is like i think people are are confusing it with real connection and they're losing some of the basic intrinsic parts of what makes us human and how we develop relationships and how we communicate because young kids are learning how to do so through the lens of a phone and it's just a different thing but i would i would not argue that that is an authentic connection and so maybe you're right that in some ways the AI clone didn't feel as controversial or as as shocking to me as it might to to others, because I'm like, well, I've kind of already been doing this. i mm. sort of had a, I had a fictional version of myself that was acting out for 10 years in front of a lens and you know, not feigning connection, but not really having a real connection either with the audience
0: hey guys like and subscribe uh, love you, know, you
1: so much
0: it, it becomes its own language you know it's it's, it's yeah. odd to uh, odd to watch people try to connect through these these shiny glowing rectangles and i guess in a Funny sort of way, and you've been quite open about this, so I I don't feel bad talking about it. But YouTube led to a degree of uh, depression for you. I Mm. mean, it it was a real struggle to realize that this thing was giving you a large audience, but not necessarily giving you internal happiness. And I think the realization that you're creating character for these virtual environments is the thing that gives you back your mental health in an odd sort Mm -hmm. of way. The sadness comes when these individuals, they curate these versions of themselves online. And the sadness comes from the realization that the version of themselves online is not creating the feedback loop back into their own reality. And I think mm-hmm. the expression of that in Instagram is where You see these young individuals who are not just photoshopping their body and their self, but photoshopping whole backgrounds. They're putting rainbows in the sky, pink-tinting everything, quite literally rose-tinting the world, putting fake stars or or fake birds into the sky. and Not just creating these new identities for themselves, but these whole new realities and then they switch the thing off and have to go back to the the grey basic banality of their lives where they're refreshing to ensure they've got more followers or more subscribers or more likes you know That's it, right. in a funny sort of way virtual influencers could be the solution to the sadness that comes from trying to be IRL influencer
1: yeah I mean it's it's quite possible. It's it's actually exhausting <laughs> yeah. to put on to put on a front all the time. And granted, I think that today's influencers are there are a few major differences mm. with the kind of environment that they're growing up in and, and the one that you know the OG YouTubers grew up in. I think I think ours was was more performative. You know, it was not okay, 10, eight years ago to talk about depression or anxiety or to talk about what was really going on. And so there, Mm. there might've been more performative aspects to what we were doing. That being said, we also didn't have Instagram story, Instagram, you know, Twitter, Snapchat. We started really with just YouTube and maybe Twitter. And so there wasn't this constant sharing of one's life in the way that there is now. Mm. And you know i think for all the reasons you said it's causing a lot of mental health issues and we'll see how we'll see what happens too over over a period of time as these kids get older I and mean, they have learned validation vis-a-vis social media yeah and so what happens when that's taken away and also how does it change our brains i mean these these devices are powerful and these forms of these are strong hits of dopamine that are coming mm. in every single time there's a post, every single time there's a notification. And there's an argument that it's actually, you know, changing the very makeup of the brain and how it's processing joy and different human emotions. That's really frightening as well.
0: Yeah, that's deeply that's deeply concerning. But then that's also a good argument for entirely virtual influencers. In a funny sort of way, I've come to the realisation that virtual influencers feel more authentic than real life influencers. Mm. because If it's true that the medium is the message, well, uh, these virtual influencers, they're quite literally a product of the medium in which they've been created. So there's, uh, I think it's mm-hmm. L- Little Michaela. She's an yeah. entirely virtual Instagram influencer. She has no real life identity. She's the amalgam of the creators who've put her out into the world. And she can live <laughs> authentically because. That is the world she lives in. She doesn't live in yeah. the real world, so so she's entirely authentic to the medium. And I guess I trust them more. I trust them yeah. more than real life influencers because of that.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's really interesting. I haven't heard that perspective before, Luke, but I I like it. It's it's something I'm gonna have to chew on. I enjoy following Little Michaela, by the way. It's such a fun ride.
0: It's it, it's a fun ride, and it's it's something that. You know, you feel comfortable with because the desire isn't eventually to monetize these things. Because perhaps it's not the platform that's the problem, perhaps the problem is the business model. Because we're beginning to see more and more of these micropayment style models Mm -hmm. for creating content it does make me worry that it starts to define, again, the form of creativity. So with mm-hmm. Twitter launching micropayments, where I can start paying you, Taryn, for your, your tweets, and um, Instagram doing tip jars, and God knows where else, and things like OnlyFans, where it's basically send you nudes and get payments for that. It's like every little expression of you has some form of value out into the world. And uh, the question becomes, as you start valuing parts of your identity based on what the market value for that thing is, does it ultimately cheapen who you are?
1: 100%.
0: Yeah,
1: It commoditizes all human behavior and it also incentivizes us to behave in ways that make us money, but aren't necessarily good for society, which is yeah. The biggest concern that I have, and and it transactionalizes relationships as well. So, um, is that a word? Transactionalizes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just made it up. Yeah, yeah there we go. So, but I, I I completely agree, and I think that there's it's an interesting sort of conundrum that we're in right now because on one hand, this technology is moving at breakneck speeds, and it's it's already hit, I think a, a what's the word, Uh, saturation point within a generation. It's not going away Mm. and it is heavily influencing behavior. And then on the flip side of that, we're seeing people really struggling with mental health, but talking about it more than they ever have in the past, and certainly more than our parents' generation did. There's an awareness and there's a desire to learn more about what's going on in our inner world and to make sense out of that. And so it's weird. Like As we're developing the tools that inevitably are leading us down one direction, we're also developing the tools that help make it easier to dive in deeper to what's going on internally. So I'm very curious to see where this all nets out and hoping that I'll end up On the right side of history with all of this stuff.
0: Well, it's the argument for AI clones, really. I'd I'd rather have a version of myself, like Luke Robots Mason, that would go (laughs) out into the world, do all my social media for me. I'd feed it my last decade worth of tweets, it can tweet on my behalf, go earn me some money, and what I'll go and do is I'll go and reclaim the real world. I'll go sit in a coffee shop and and read a book or take a walk or not have to interact in these environments, and yet the AI on my behalf will be making me the micropayments needed to to live effectively right. as a, as an influencer so i mean it's a very it's a very compelling it's a very compelling model but when it comes to the business model of it i mean how are you thinking about licensing your avatar because it has your face it it yeah. has your voice i mean how do you start thinking about the legalities related to ai clones how much of the thing uh, do you feel you Own and how much Mm -hmm. of the thing can you verifiably monetize?
1: Yep, it's a great question, and it's still really early days. So Mm. there's not necessarily a market, or there's certainly (laughs) not a rabid market for AI clones. Uh You know, I do have a, a deal with Hour One that that allows me to essentially approve or disapprove anywhere my likeness is used. Yeah, so I think that there's like two two sort of questions here. One is what what are the legal frameworks that are being developed around this technology? Mm-hmm. And where do creators sit in that? We, we we obviously need to make sure that these are real human beings, that we're, there are clones being made of them. And so there are a lot of protections that need to be in place to ensure mm-hmm. that it's not misused. Secondarily to that, it's actually well, what is the economic marketplace? Is there money to be made that could allow Taryn to real life, Taryn, to read a book, as you were saying, and Uh play in the grass and whatever else I feel like doing. And it's still very early, as I said, but I, you know, I actually, my next kind of goal in this is to help establish a sort of body, a, a body of voices that can ensure that as more of these companies pop up and develop that there are protections in place almost almost like a union of sorts for <sighs> on-camera talent is to ensure that this doesn't go in a really dark direction for them and also to ensure that licensing payments are fair mm. and reasonable because the thing that i do fear and i'll just be open and honest about this I do have a fear that the cost of these AI clones could become so cheap that it suddenly renders real humans obsolete. I mean, why would a company hire a real-life person if they can get the AI clone version who doesn't sleep, doesn't eat, <laughs> does everything they say perfectly, <laughs> uh-huh. at a fraction of the cost?
0: Well, doesn't let's flip that, because does it actually make yeah. the real Terran more valuable. If there's a version of you, a digitised yeah. version of you, an AI clone version of you that can do whatever it wants, but then they could also have Taron Southern, the real person, yeah. turn up and do a piece to camera. Does that right. increase the value of the fact that it's authentically you that shows up to yeah. read whatever it is, the the brand or the organisation or the uh, their client? or once. It could the AI version of you just do the basic banalities, make you a couple of micropayments for reading right. tweets or what's the app where uh, celebrities cameo. Do the cameo yes. stuff. Let that thing do the cameo stuff. Make me a fiver for wishing someone a happy birthday. Off you go. And 100%. the real towering can do the real work, the important work, the the yeah. interesting, urgent work, the documentary work that you've been doing.
1: I, I love that. I think that that's Certainly, one way this could go, and I hope that that's what happens. Mm.
0: And and does it need to be Taron? Could, could there be an army of individuals similar to you? You know, does there? And this is the funny thing about virtual persons: it is does there need to be a creator? Because when I see the the new sort of wave of virtual persons that are based on these repurposing of video to create something that represents a, a human being, I I'm always worried that there's no verifiable origin. You know, the the real Mm. aim for things like MetaHuman, the Unreal Engine's version Mm -hmm. of creating purely virtual humans. I, they're they're incredible. They're they're utterly beautiful as 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 creatures. Um, I'm going to call them creatures instead of humans. (laughs) But the thing about them is that because there's no origin, because they're not based on anything, do they Mm. actually? Present themselves as demons? Are they embodying the worst of technology, but in human form, rather than embodying the best of humans through technology?
1: Hmm. Why? Why do you say that? What makes you think that they could be embodying the worst of human form just because they're not sort of based on something?
0: Because there's no responsibility. You know, it's, mm. it's, it's joyous when an artist creates an AI avatar version of themselves that they that they culture, that they curate, that they create, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it feels like they have some form of ownership and relationship to the thing. If you can Mm -hmm. press a button and a face appears that looks verifiably human, but can do basically whatever you want, then I guess it has less value. It just shows that human beings are as easy as a button press. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're working together with a form of technology to train this thing to express its humanity, that version of an AI clone seems to have way much more value than something that's an amalgam of a multitude of expressions of humans in technological form. I sure. when it's yours. It feels so much more vital and so much more important. And yet it then is almost like this, this owned, I don't want to say slave, but it's almost like a a thing that you constantly have to check in with. It doesn't have its own autonomy. And there was an Mm -hmm. artist, Stellark, used to talk about Third Life. He goes, Second Life's great, but Second Life are these avatar versions of yourself that you have to puppeteer. When you Mm. log off, that thing doesn't go and live its own life in the virtual world. It doesn't walk around on your behalf, make connections Mm -hmm. on your behalf, make friends on your behalf, and then when you log back in, you check in with it and it goes, hey, I've made all of these new friends now, and you're going to like these people because I'm an expression of you, and because I'm an expression of you I've made a friend with this person. You know, These (laughs) things don't make us better humans, they just are a confined expression of who we want to be in virtual form. Because mm-hmm. The interesting thing about AI Taron is AI Taron is a subjectively edited version of you. If you gave it pure an utter unfettered access to the multitude of expressions of you, if it was allowed to trawl through all your private messages and all of your interactions, if there was something ambiently following you throughout the uh, out your life, whether it's um, perhaps a chip, a chip in the brain, <laughs> yeah, but it's, that's terrifying. That yeah. The idea that this yeah. thing is not subjectively edited, the idea that you would give it complete and utter freedom to teach you something about you. That's where it becomes a challenge. As a mediated activity, as a form of creativity where you're crafting it subjectively, it feels safe. But if you just let that thing go at all your digital devices, and then boot up one day and talk back to you, (laughs) that's That's the thing that scares people.
1: Yeah. Can we please not have it learn from 2010, Taryn? Well, I mean, that's the thing. why not
0: create a 2010 Terran? Why not create an Instagram influencer based on 2010 Terran who was doing, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful things on YouTube that maybe, mm-hmm. you know, 2021 Taryn. yeah, color now. Off color, Taren, now. Yeah, off color <laughs> yep. now. But yep. why not let that exist as an identity out in the world and just uh, relinquish it? Uh, maybe it's a form of. Uh, Maybe it could be very cathartic as an experience.
1: It absolutely could. I'm so intrigued by this idea. I think it's fascinating to be able to see the evolution of self through the eyes of algorithms that are studying and assessing, you know, where have the changes taken place? We also, as a society, would have to get way more forgiving. (laughs) Oh my goodness! Like this is this would just wreak havoc on the well, world. Well, well,
0: that's the thing. And in your other interest is is brain computer interfaces. These things that mm-hmm. always remind me of Greg Egan's story in Axiomatic: Learning to Be Me, where he talks about being, you know, six years old and having this uh, this small dark jewel inside of his head that's slowly but surely learning to be me. And not, and not to do a spoiler alert, but long story short, that short story describes how his brain is scooped out and the jewel that replaces <gasps> his oh. his brain. Because that thing has basically learned how to be him. Why need a biological brain when you could have a way much more durable form of that? And uh, yeah, how can these things speak freely in a world of cancel culture? Could could it get to the point where we're starting to cancel AI bots?
1: (laughs) Probably. Uh, (laughs) I don't think we've seen the end of it yet, Luke. Sadly, but something's going to have to change. Something is going to have to change because we. We simply cannot continue living in a society that has zero tolerance for Mm. for ideas to evolve. Like we need to encourage idea evolution, and that means coming up with a different way of handling people's past transgressions. I think.
0: Well, it comes with a new way of understanding identity. To realize that these things don't have to have coherent narrative, Mm. and. You know, when creating these AI clones or a YouTube video or a documentary, you have to craft the narrative and it has to have a beginning, middle, and an end. And I worry for two things. Well, one I know you're more involved with than the other, which is digital birth and digital death. Mm. You know, how we subjectively edit a child's identity up until whenever the digital bar mitzvah is and we hand over the passwords to the social media accounts that their parents have been subjectively creating and editing for them for the past. 13 years of their life. The question is, I mean, we, you know, we haven't had a generation that's lived through that, but the question is, what does that child do? To, I personally, thinking back, I just delete everything and start yeah. again and yeah. be like, Jesus, why are all these baby photos of me sucking my thumb on the internet? <laughs> You know, and then some blasted marketing algorithms looking at all these photos of me sucking my thumb, realizing that I'm orally retentive, and going, "All oh, right, okay, the best way to market to an orally retentive versus an aurally retentive person is to do this, this, and this." You know, it's it's a it's a horrible thing to be exposed in that way, and then with digital death. I mean, the question really is, Taryn, how do you want to be remembered?
1: Mm. It's such a good question, and it's one that I started chewing on two years ago when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. It was an interesting situation to go from one week feeling like you're on top of the world, that you're as healthy and as happy as one could be. And the next week you're getting a stage three cancer diagnosis and Mm. being asked to sign a will and medical directive. And it, it, it brought up a lot of questions for me, particularly when I was going through chemo and I felt like I was dying, even though I was, wasn't, but you (sighs) you know, you're, you're, your brain is telling you otherwise. And, and I started, I started grappling with some of those questions and now it's been a year since I finished treatment and I've been consulting for a company called good trust, which basically Mm -hmm. approaches this problem or this conversation around what happens after we die, what happens to our digital identities, our digital stuff. Do we care about digital legacy? And if so, how do we have some control or some ownership of over that while we're still alive? Mm. And, you know, I thought about it and I feel like I don't have kids yet. So I'm sure that the answer to this question will change dramatically when I have kids. Mm-hmm. But there was a part of me that was like, you know, I would like to ensure that my friends and loved ones have some some kind of interaction with me after I'm gone, whatever that looks like, whether it's a collection of my my memories, whether it's insights or takeaways that I feel might be helpful for them. And then when I think about kids and add that into the mix, I'm like, oh, I'd really want to make sure that that they have some piece of me that the, hopefully the good piece. That stays behind. And then I think as an anthropologist, I hadn't got my degree in anthropology. I just get really excited about the future of historical preservation and story and narrative Mm -hmm. preservation and heritage preservation through these different technologies like AI that will enable us to repackage our experience for others to, to learn from, indulge in, you know, far after we've passed. What I would give to have my great, great, great grandmother, you know, who came to America on a ship, giving me advice from her perspective. How cool would that be?
0: Would that be... Cool because your great-great-grandmother had this incredible life story. But there's a whole generation of kids who have grown up on TikTok whereby their grandkids have got to see a hundred videos of them on TikTok twerking. It's just like there is a there is a question of like what is valuable to uh-huh. preserve and to keep. And there's something. Well, there's two things going on when it comes to digital immortality. And one is this subjective editing during your life of a version of yourself that your ancestors will find. and On the other hand, there's this digital reanimation of the artefacts that we have and that we've inherited from our ancestors, whether they're black and white photographs or diaries. And you look at someone like Ray Kurzweil, I mean, his drive to upload minds is really a narrative about bringing back his dead father. He has a storage unit somewhere Mm. in California where he has his father's diaries. The guy wrote a heck of a lot of these diaries. And his hope is you can ingest that text and kick out something that is authentically his father. But. It's not going to be authentically his father. It's going to be how his mm-hmm. father subjectively edited his identity and how his father sure. wanted to be remembered because he was writing those things to potentially be read. And it does scare me a little bit that we are allowing so much of ourselves to be. The raw material for the possible AI that will an- reanimate us, because it mm-hmm. could get it wrong, and we won't be around to say otherwise. You know, and you, for when sure. you see the the company that you're you're working with at the moment, you see how they reanimate those, and they're beautiful. They, they reanimate those uh, black and white photographs Photos. of your ancestors. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I thought when I put my grandfather through that was, did he actually move like that? <laughs> Did he actually Mm. smile like that? He's got a weird cheeky smile. I don't think I ever saw my grandfather cheekily smile like that. Is that an AI's (laughs) interpretation of that photograph? So the first thing I did was take a photo of myself, put it through an ageing algorithm so it could age me up to about 80 years old, and then throw that thing through the software to see if its aged version of me it would animate in a way in which I could recognise as me. And annoyingly, it did. (laughs) <laughs> which oh, I
1: wow.
0: Hate to admit. I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I want to see
1: the result of that, Luke. You I would send to yeah, I'll send
0: that to you. I, I would turn my uh, I would turn my head like that. That's slightly that's slightly annoying. But th- back to the idea of there being two things going on here. Is there a joy in genuinely forgetting in relinquishing your identity to the agency of other individuals? Because again, back to talking about AI Tarrant. She is your creation, and mm-hmm. yet Taryn Southern lives in the minds of a multitude of individuals. You live in the mind of 450,000 YouTube subscribers. They all have a different idea of who you are. I have a different idea of who you are in my head. Your fiance has a different idea of who you are. Your grandmother has a different idea of who you are. You cannot control the multiplicity of identities, so why bother?
1: Oh, <laughs> That's a really good and meaty question, Luke. Why bother? I mean, I suppose if you look at legacy, it's always been a presentation it's always been you know a curated version of oneself, mm. whether as a as a biography or or something else. You know, we we choose to present certain aspects of ourselves that we feel are worthy of passing down to others. And the interesting thing, of course, that you've already pointed out is that as time changes and culture changes, you know, an AI may do a terrible job of presenting what we would actually want out there. But for some reason, we have this need as humans to want to preserve and and share and pass knowledge down that we mm. deem important. So I suppose I look at these tools as just like another option set and people don't have to choose them, but they have them as an option. And I just know for me, I would love to have my grandmother who passed away 10 years ago, I would love to have her digitized and giving me thoughtful pieces of advice. There is nothing that would bring me more joy and would make me feel more connected to her and would probably make me a better person mm-hmm. than having this like version of her in my cell phone that I could connect to immediately. And ultimately she's not here to tell me whether or not she's okay with that. And she's not here to watch, you know, the AI versions of herself back and give approval. And so we have to, at some point, I think, decide, are we okay with that? Are we okay with not having control over our future selves in exchange for future generations being able to have some sort of insight or information in exchange?
0: Do you mind me asking, Sarah, did you know your grandmother? I did. You did. And then do did. you mind yeah, asking? I had a
1: relationship with her until I was 23.
0: So you, you know that that individual is going to give reliable advice, but some people's ancestors might be arseholes, you know? Right. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> it's the worst thing in the world to have your your ancestor right. following you around on your digital device giving you advice when right. they probably gave very bad advice you had a wonderful relationship right. with your grandmother so it makes sense that you want that person preserved right. I, 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 I so guess think
1: some things maybe shouldn't be preserved Is that was your- <laughs> it's a hundred percent and I,
0: I but I do understand the desire and then the most compelling thing I ever heard was we die twice once when the biological body stops working and second when our name is is mentioned for the last time. Uh, so I understand the desire to ensure that our name is acknowledged, recognised, spoken out into collective consciousness, whatever consciousness is. But I understand that there is a there is a a need for that. But if we're not going to be around, why mm-hmm. not allow that individual to navigate the world without? this individual on their shoulder, (laughs) you know, it's Mm -hmm, like, -hmm. like why create these pseudo deities that just kind of look over and judge everything that you do uh, in in life? Totally
1: valid framework. Mm. I also wonder if, if preserving these entities, even if these entities are not, are not good, you know, even if there are real acts of evil that have been committed across history and you have to wonder how did that happen? Like, how did people allow that to happen? And there might be something in the preservation of that. Yeah, it actually allows us to get to the bottom of it. I don't know, but no one's going to obviously argue, playing devil's advocate. You know, but
0: no one's going to argue for digitally reviving Hitler so we can work out <laughs> why he was such an arsehole. You know, no one's going to make that argument. It's, it's the same <laughs> sort of thought experiment of would you kill baby Hitler? It's like, well, baby right. Hitler wasn't a problem. Right, right, right. You know, I don't
1: know, but maybe, but maybe it would allow us to study sociopathy or, or some other sort of pathology in a way that we really haven't been able to and get better at sort of acknowledging our our shortcomings as a society in seeing things that are heading down a really dark path.
0: Well, the question is, why do we have to do that with AI? Why can't we just do that with other human beings? You know, why mm-hmm. can't we discover who we are, not by talking to digital versions of ourselves or digital reanimations of our ancestors, but by just talking and interacting with each other? <laughs>
1: you know? I, think it's, I think it's not one or the other, Luke. I'm going right. to vote for both. All right. I'm going to vote. I'm going to be the, the, the moderation voice here and say, I think we need both and that there's value in... In both of those things, but of course, like we cannot lose the human to human connection. That would just be the biggest travesty. Yeah.
0: But ultimately, how do you think people are finding the AI Taran experiment? Do they find it creepy or do they find it intriguing?
1: I so one of my favorite things about trying these experimental technologies is having no clue how people are going to respond (laughs) and knowing that I'm, I'm really taking a a big risk here because that's part of the experiment. And I have no judgments around people reacting negatively. I was actually surprised at the number of positive responses or intrigued responses. Mm -hmm. Certainly there were people that were very freaked out that were nervous. I got a lot of Instagram messages, very thoughtful Instagram messages from people voicing their concerns and I love that. Like, I love that I'm able to hear from all these perspectives. And that allows me to take those perspectives back into the work and also point out things that are, that are necessary for us to think through. But I, I was genuinely surprised by how many individuals were applauding AI clone Terran, at least on my YouTube channel. You have to keep in mind there are a lot of people that follow me, have followed me for uh-huh. 10 years. I haven't been posting much. Maybe they're just excited that some version of Terran is like re entering the world and re engaging on YouTube and they don't care that it's a clone version as much. But, you know, who knows the reason? But the the response was pretty positive. Do, do you think your
0: clone AI Taron to learn more about Taron. So AI Taron right now she may love the Spice Girls, but what if you could create an AI Taron that would just love punk rock? Might you realize that? Oh, in actual fact, I don't hate punk rock.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would. I would love to have this virtual version of me out there and learning things and doing things. I mean, I was just looking at the um, the AI version of Sam Harris. Sam Harris (laughs) and he's spouting all of this wisdom. And then they injected some humor into him. And I mean, I I already think Sam has a great sense of humor, but this, this AI version of him was particularly funny. And, um, I love the idea that I could pick up some new skills. (laughs) The AI, the AI AI version of me could pick up some new skills and hobbies and, um, and yeah, and teach me some things. I'm into it. An
0: an AI Sam Harris, that is 20% Ricky Gervais. That sounds like a, a So good. Well, the digital Sherpa thing is appealing because that reopens this back up to the the real joy and promise of the internet, which was we would be able to explore and experiment with our identity. And it feels like now we have to create these fixed identities, these brands, the Taryn Southern brand, the Luke Robert Mason brand that can only tweet about science and technology. (laughs) And if I tweet about anything else, no one cares. Yep. (laughs) Creating these things to be digital Sherpas on your behalf, to explore the other aspects of your identity That you don't necessarily want to discuss with your four hundred thousand strong audience. That seems to be the exciting and positive thing Mm. to me.
1: I like it. I think we need to clone you, Luke, and then you can start running these experiments too. Well, I'm I'm
0: fascinated by the work of Code Miko. Have you seen um, the the Code Miko is one of the first V. YouTubers, so virtual YouTubers. So this individual code Miko. So it's it's created by a technology, it's an amalgam of technologies, but it's a virtual avatar that's fully puppeteered. So it's it's doing facial tracking, the, the person's wearing a, a suit that allows them to track their body. And they basically sit on Twitch and have these interactions with their audience. And because Mm -hmm. this thing is an Avatar version of themselves, because they're puppeteering it, they can express however they want. So the technician's thoughts, the human individual puppeteering this thing, aren't necessarily the character's thoughts. And I've always Mm. thought about it, Taryn, and I'd love to get to the point at which we can do this interview again, but it won't be you and I. It'll be Luke Mm. Robot Mason and AI Taryn having a podcast (laughs) interview and we could just Let them go for 60 minutes and see what they come up with and see what weird and wonderful places that they go into. And then we could Mm. kind of follow up on that interview. There is something beautiful about this stuff, as cynical as I seem, there's something beautiful about this stuff when it teaches us something about Mm -hmm. human creativity and human possibilities. And the idea of a Code Miko, where you can create a new skin for yourself. You know, and I could be a a green alien and have a completely new character and personality and explore some aspects of a thing that I wanted to explore as Luke Robert Mason. But the fact that I do science and technology stuff means that I don't feel authentically I can do that out online. That seems entirely liberating to me. That brings us Mm. back to the original dream of the internet to allow anybody to be anything they want to be online.
1: Yeah. So good. I'm, Um, I'm, I'm all in Luke.
0: Yeah, well, all right. We'll 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 have my we'll have my giant green alien Luke robot Mason interview AI yes. AI Taryn in the future. And the thing I love about you, Taryn, is you're always looking a couple of steps ahead. And yeah. I, I know that you have this wide interest in things like biohacking and brain computer interfaces. And I wonder how some of that work might start enhancing the AI work that you're doing. Because you, do you ever think we could get to the point where we could just jack in to computers to express our creativity?
1: I do. I do think that we will. I'm already amazed at what's being done in the brain-computer interface space. Mm-hmm. You know, what putting an electrode inside the skull already means for human connection, creativity, emotion. And of course, it brings with it a whole slew of controversial questions, but the reality is we can manipulate human behavior.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We can shift human behavior and. We just have to decide what we want this human-machine connection to look like. And so, yeah, I am. I'm super passionate about everything that's happening in the world of uh, biohacking and longevity. I think personalized medicine and diagnostics are changing the game for what it means to live our best lives. And I think us being able to hook these diagnostics into our storytelling, Mm. into our creativity, is where things get really really interesting. You know, I I joke with my friends that there's there's a job title that I really really want called experience architect uh-huh. where I'm essentially building experiences vis-a-vis story And sensory inputs, sounds, tastes, smells, sights. I'm building an entire world that people can enter into and get lost in and and embody storytelling in. And, like, I think that's the future of creativity and storytelling. I can't wait for us to just get there already so that I can do it and have experience (laughs) architect written on a digital card (laughs) or on my LinkedIn bio.
0: (laughs) Well, that's where we're going, really. It it does feel, talking to you, Taryn, that, that the AI clone is just the gateway. Drug for you to create your own reality. That's
1: right. Or That's right.
0: <laughs> well, at least you're willing to admit it. <laughs>
1: I'm and un- I'm all, all
0: in. When, when we die, we can all decide to come live in Terran Southern or Terran Northern or Terran Eastern or Terran Western. They'll all be. By the these- way,
1: I don't claim my world's the right place for anyone to go hang out in. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that to everyone we'll, to decide.
0: We'll, we'll all make our own decisions. I mean, I, I guess inevitably this ends up in in asking sort of philosophical questions about what we believe the brain and human creativity is there there does feel like there's an underlying assumption in your work that you feel that the human brain is very similar to a computer or an information processing uh, system. How true do you really think that is, Taryn? Uh, are we just mm. hyper evolved computers, or is there something more untangible that's going on there? There's some other form of thing that allows human beings to express creativity.
1: I don't think we know. I don't think we have any idea. I mean, I will say from. From all the work that I did on I Am Human, which was this documentary about the future of the brain, I mean, I I learned a tremendous amount and was really struck by how algorithmic we really can be in the what I would say are early neuroscience studies, looking at how the brain Mm -hmm. assesses information and makes decisions. You know, we are the product of millions of experiences and memories and how our brain categorizes those memories and experiences to create learnings, you know, we're unaware, that's an unconscious process that's happening in the background. It's like the processing of a computer. We don't know why certain pieces of information are given more relevance than others, but we can kind of quantify it and there are patterns there. And so I'd say my inclination is more to believe that we are just incredibly advanced Algorithms. We just don't yet have the tools to fully dissect what these algorithms look like. I find that, you know, I know that some people find that terrifying. I find that empowering because mm-hmm. the idea that, that we really are just these sort of complicated algorithms that can be reduced down and changed for the better that we can take elements of our personality that aren't serving us, such as, you know, anytime someone says a negative comment about me, I'm going to remember that. But then for some reason, all the positive things like I just forget about, it's like, that's a kind of crappy flaw in my (laughs) OS system. (sighs) Can we shift that to create a more positive Terran and a more balanced Terran and maybe a Terran that's actually more reflective of reality? I like this idea, actually, that our brains are these advanced algorithms. It's soothing to me.
0: But aren't all Taron's flaws what make you unique and so interesting as a creator? I mean, it feels like a odd question to ask, but if you were able to- this is a difficult question to ask. But if you're able not to go through the experience of cancer that you went through, uh, would you choose to? I guess from a medical perspective, you would. But what you've learned going through that experience—that a uh, very negative experience—surely that's now changed your thinking about life, creativity, the AI, all that you do. That there is mm-hmm. value in these negative experiences, even if they are negative.
1: One hundred percent. I I don't I don't I can't argue that I think we should just wipe out negative experiences mm. and I don't know how you figure out well what what's a, an experience that's worthy of keeping and holding on to yeah. and what's something that's actually just holding us back but even regarding my the, the year that I had in cancer treatment, you know there were so many beautiful lessons that I learned in, in that year and coming out of that I kind of felt invincible like nothing's stressing me out I'm so grateful to just be here and be alive every day and then you know as time goes on, you start to lose some of these mm-hmm. insights. They start to become like distant little fuzzy dreams and they're so important to be able to hold on to. And so I would actually argue, like, I don't want to take away the negative experience. I, I want to fortify the the learning and the lesson from that. So what's a way that I could do that through future technologies with the brain? Of course, like, how, you know, how are we going to de- make these decisions? How are we going to figure out what's worthy of saving and... Getting rid of, and it's a really complicated, much bigger conversation. Obviously,
0: yeah, it's, it's <laughs> wild hearing you say that. I was, I was watching, I was binging on Terran Southern content uh, this oh, week no, in preparation for this, and I was watching <laughs> some of your older videos, and then there's the, the more recent video which is about surviving your cancer diagnosis, and you see this individual who's so connected with human beings, is hugging them, cuddling them, crying, is expressing full emotion, and it, it's such a different Taryn. From the Taron that I'd binged on your YouTube, it, it was a yeah. more authentic, a more uh, real human being. And I'm not saying that you should, you know, <laughs> drive towards more of that style of content, but it was just, <laughs> it was revelatory in a way. It was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing to see, and it, and and it was. In such vast contrast to your AI clone video, which was mm-hmm. the next thing that was for me to uh, to watch. So, I guess my my final question is: I guess it's a philosophical question, and it's one about creativity. I mean, where do you think your creative expression comes from? When we talk about AI, we always fixate on consciousness and we fixate on intelligence but in actual fact it feels like creativity is not reliant on consciousness or intelligence in any way shape or form sometimes it's reliant on dreaming or just being unconscious or going for a walk and coming up with an idea you know all of these things that we discount in everyday life is is where the seat of creativity is so uh, terrence southern where does your creativity live
1: oh goodness i feel like my inability to answer this question is probably the answer to the question, which is, <laughs> you know, I follow, I follow my curiosity
2: mm.
1: and I just, I, I always feel like it's this, it's this desire to understand something that I don't understand that fuels my creative process. It's probably why I've always been driven to do the thing that, that no one else has done. Or I, that sounds, I don't mean to sound egoic, yeah. um, you know, even when I went and started making YouTube videos back in 2006, mm. like, it was it was not kosher at that time. There was sort of like this, like, what are you, what are you doing? They're, cat videos belong on YouTube, not people. And I don't know. I just, I have this, like, insatiable interest in doing either the wrong thing or doing the new thing or doing the thing that will just satisfy some deep, create like, urge to know. Mm. And then from there, those learnings and those insights actually you know, when you're present with them, they naturally evolve into like some kind of creative process. Uh But for me, I get most excited. I light up when someone poses a question or I hear of something new that I have never heard of before. And I'm instantly like, I got to dive into that. I don't know what that is, but I got to figure it out.
0: Well, Taryn Southern, you're a wildly creative and, and a deeply interesting individual. And I'm excited to follow the evolution or devolution maybe of uh, AI. Taryn, and on that note, I just want to thank you for being on the Futures Podcast. Oh,
1: Luke, it was so good to see you. It's been way too long and I, I got to hear what you, all, the things that you, all the amazing things you're up to next. So.
0: For another time.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you to Taryn for showing us what's possible when code and creativity collide. You can find out more by visiting her website, tarrynsouthern.com. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to The Futures Podcast.